Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2020. This year will be one of the most, if not the most, consequential in American political history. For the first time ever, a president of the United States runs for re-election after being impeached by the House of Representatives and facing a trial in the U.S. Senate. Control of both houses of Congress, the White House, and the future of the Supreme Court all hang in the balance. And in the next few months, Democrats will choose their nominee to take on President Trump in November. But going into Iowa and New Hampshire after nearly a year of campaigning and a half dozen debates, no clear frontrunner has emerged. And now, in addition to all of that, the specter of war hangs over the Middle East after U.S. forces assassinated Iran's highest-ranking military leader less than 48 hours into the new year. Every week, Joe and I will try to cut through the spin and the partisan talking points to help you figure out what's really going on with impeachment, the Democratic primaries, the November elections, and much, much more. We don't pretend to know what's going to happen, but we can promise you it won't be boring. And please let us know what you think. Email your questions, your thoughts, your comments to contact at wordsmattermedia.com. That's contact at wordsmattermedia.com. Or visit our website or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So, welcome to 2020. Buckle up and join us every week here at Words Matter. So, Joe, Happy New Year and welcome to 2020. Happy New Year to you, Katie. We're going to talk about the latest on impeachment, the Democratic presidential nomination, and more. But first, you have long said that given the deep political divisions in Washington, we've been very lucky as a country that President Trump has not faced a major foreign policy crisis. Until now. That changed last week in dramatic fashion after U.S. forces assassinated Iran's highest-ranking military leader less than 48 hours into the new year. So, Joe, just explain for us exactly what happened and why it matters. Well, there's a couple elements to this. First, the U.S. military and intelligence services have been saying now for a couple of weeks that the Iran-based Iraqi militias were planning something. We still don't know what that is. And there were a couple intervening events over the last, oh, year or so. The Iranians shooting down a drone, attacking some Saudi oil ships. And then most recently, after the U.S. retaliated for when a U.S. contractor was killed in Iraq, um, the Iraqi-backed Iranian militia, which is like the Iranians, tried to storm the embassy. Uh, So, you know, tensions went up pretty high pretty quickly. This is important because this is an exponential escalation. This gentleman, uh, who I don't think anyone will mourn his loss, has been well known to the U.S. And the three previous presidents have chosen not to take him out because they believed that it would start a war with Iran. And once you start a war in that region, it's hard to see where it stops. One of the things that I've worried about for the last three years is the president's ability to handle something like this. 
Even even the the smartest foreign policy president with the best people around him would have a lot of trouble sorting through what the plan is next. But you would have some reasonable expectation that they knew what the escalation would be and they were ready for it. I don't think we have that with President Trump. He doesn't believe in intelligence. He doesn't read his intelligence briefings. He probably doesn't know who this gentleman is. He doesn't know much about the region except that because Obama signed the Iranian nuclear deal, he wanted to get out of it, which is hardly sophisticated national security or foreign policy. And now we're in it. Again, the problem is even with the best thinkers in the world, it's very hard to see this not escalating even further into a shooting war that it's very hard to see it not being a disaster for the world, but particularly the region. So the president has been lucky, as we've talked about here a couple of times, that there hasn't been a really sophisticated problem that he's had to manage and and deal with. And now he's got one. He he gave the order. You know, as Colin Powell once said, you break it, you own it. He, he's got to have a plan for what comes next. And it can't just be mean tweets and threatening tweets because this is an incredibly serious escalation and a very, very dangerous time for our troops there, American contractors there, and for the region as a whole. So except for a very small minority, there doesn't seem to be much of an appetite on Capitol Hill in either party for another war in the Middle East. How do you see the politics of this playing out over the next few days and weeks? Yeah, it's a tough one because... The instinct of any poli- any good politician is to rally around the president when there's a military action. But you're right. There is no appetite. And the Democrats are fully aware that the president doesn't have a sophisticated, well-thought-through plan with contingencies for how to keep this from getting out of hand. So I think you've already seen Democrats express some skepticism that they weren't consulted. I, I don't think there's a voter in America that cares about that. The president makes these decisions. Uh, members of Congress care about it, but that's that's about it. Republicans, this is a test for. This reminds me a little bit of when we pulled out of Syria, but times a thousand. In that case, they were gently and mildly critical of the president. Here, if it was another time, they'd be down at the White House or Mar-a-Lago, as the case may be, and telling the president that he's got to come up with a way to de-escalate this. But this is not your father's Republican Party. This is the Republican Party that will do anything and support anything that Donald Trump does. It'll be a test for them, but they have failed every test for the last three years. So I have no reason to believe they'll pass this one. All right, let's talk about impeachment. On December 18th of last year, the House approved two articles of impeachment against President Trump, making him only the third U.S. president to face an impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate. As of this recording, Speaker Pelosi has still not formally transmitted the articles of impeachment to the Senate. So let's start with the politics of Pelosi's gambit. Has the case for impeachment and removal gotten stronger or weaker over the last two and a half weeks? I think it's gotten stronger. Um, I think it's gotten slightly stronger because of Pelosi's move to hold back the articles. I think it's gotten significantly stronger with the release of some of this data that came out, some memos that clearly show that between OMB and the Defense Department, it was and the Defense Department was very upset that the aid to Ukraine was not going through, and OMB was very clear that this was being done at the direction of the president. A lot of people say that the rough transcript of the call with President Zelensky was the smoking gun. 
This is the smoking howitzer. It very clearly shows everyone in the government saying, why are we doing this? But we're doing this because the president told us to do this. So that, I think, has strengthened the case. And remember, what we're fighting over here is not whether the president will be removed or whether the articles will ever get over there. We're fighting over the rules for what the trial will look like. And specifically, will there be witnesses? Will there be documents delivered to the Senate so that they can understand fully what the president's done, what his defense is, and make a political decision whether he should be removed or not? Again, most people don't expect him to be removed. How much longer do you think the speaker can hold the articles of impeachment? You know, next week is key. Um, She'll hold them as long as she feels like it's working to her advantage. And my guess is that every day that goes by, it'll be diminishing returns. So I expect that they'll go over fairly soon, sometime in the next couple of weeks. But it was very effective uh, to control the narrative over the holiday break. I don't know whether it was luck, serendipity, or part of the plan. Maybe they knew some of this stuff was coming out. But some of the things that have been put out into the public have really strengthened their case. All right. Now let's look at the race for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination. Last week, we saw another candidate, Julian Castro, drop out of the race. And going into Iowa and New Hampshire, the race is down to four major candidates, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders and South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar has shown some signs of life in Iowa and former New York mayor and billionaire Mike Bloomberg won't face the voters until March. So, Joe, how do you see the Democratic field shaping up at this point? Well, you know, Julian Castro is the latest candidate to drop out because of money. He would have kept going and liked to face the voters, I think. But it's just expensive to keep a campaign going, to fund a field operation, to expensive to raise money. And, you know, like Kamala Harris and some others, they saw their ability to raise the funds they needed dwindling. That's the way it should be. Julian Castro is a great candidate, but these are tests that we put our candidates through to see how they do. He did some things very well in this campaign, but he wasn't able to get into that top tier and play in the big leagues. I think you hit Iowa right on the head. It's the four big candidates, and I think Amy Klobuchar is, she's not even a dark horse anymore. I think people see her neighboring Minnesota, you know, a Midwestern strong woman as uh, very attractive in Iowa. So I think there's five players there. I don't know that she's going to have much traction in New Hampshire. So I think we're going to see going into New Hampshire and coming out of New Hampshire, three or four strong candidates fighting it out all of a sudden in diverse states, Nevada and South Carolina, and then on Super Tuesday. It's interesting that there's a lot of people who kind of felt and stopped paying attention to Bernie Sanders. And that's pretty silly because Bernie Sanders, first off, has the most money except for Bloomberg and Tom Steyer. And that's that's a whole different thing. We can talk about that later. He's well-funded. He has a passionate base. And in a race with four or five candidates, he's going to get 20 percent almost anywhere he runs at a minimum. I think he and Joe Biden are the strongest candidates in the race. I think I think Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg were put through some tough steps in this campaign, as again, as the campaign should do. They came out bruised, but they came out alive. And Buttigieg now has has the money. He always has. You know, Elizabeth Warren a little less so. But they are alive, and that's all you need to be. Um, remember in 2004, 
In December of 2003, John Kerry was at 4% in Iowa in last place. He won Iowa. Uh, Politics is a relatively fickle and funny game. We're going to come out of New Hampshire. I wish I could predict the winner there. I can't. But I think my guess is this will come quickly down to a, a race between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. So in some ways, it mirrors 2016. But in a very significant way, it doesn't. Um, Hillary Clinton did not have the appeal of blue-collar workers, non-college educated workers that Joe Biden has. He's made a career out of talking about Scranton, Pennsylvania, where he grew up, and the hard-scrabble things that he had to do to get to where he is now. And then add that to very, very strong support in the African-American community, particularly among women. That's a pretty powerful combination. All of the candidates that are in the race, once they get to places like South Carolina and Nevada, where there's significant African-American populations, it's when you would, you would suppose their Achilles heel. They just, you know, Buttigieg, Warren, and Sanders do not have followings in that community. Some of this is understandable, given that Biden's been in this thing for a long time. People know him. But Sanders, if he really wanted to be president, coming out of 2016 – should have been building uh, a base within the African-American community. And he didn't do that. My guess is that's going to be his fatal flaw going forward. Is there a chance that we could go into the summer not knowing who the Democratic nominee will be? And if so, is that a good thing or a bad thing for the Democrats' chances of defeating President Trump in November? Yeah. Given the changes in the way the delegates are apportioned and the reduction of superdelegates, We have a reasonable chance this time of going into the convention without a first ballot victor. Even if we get to the convention knowing who's going to win, we're not going to know until right before, I believe. It's one of those things where it, on paper, it's a bad thing because you want to be able to marshal your resources and train your political guns on, on the president. In reality, you just don't know. One of the things about running for president is... Winning begets winning, and winning a few times makes you look like a winner. So someone winning in a very tough fight emerging in the summer now as the nominee has a lot of wind at their back. So if you're sitting at the DNC or one of the sitting at wherever the party elders gather, whoever they are, you want this thing settled today, not at the convention. But I think we'll probably go in with a reasonable chance of not knowing who the nominee is. The other thing it'll do is the conventions have become a snooze. I mean, like, I can't watch them. I can't watch either of them uh, because it's just a bunch of speeches and I'll watch the acceptance speech because those were important. This is exciting. This will be dramatic and people will tune in. It'll be a rallying call for the so-called resistance. And what these candidates do, whoever the candidate who wins does immediately to bring the rest of the candidates and the party together will be one of the top two or three determining factors of whether the Democrats can beat Trump. You take it either way. I, and I don't know that Biden or Sanders are going to be the final two. But let's assume, just for argument, that they are. Biden reaching out to Sanders' supporter and you know doing meaningful things to address their concerns is critical. And the opposite is true. Sanders reaching out to Biden supporters and you know letting them know that you know it, it's a revolution. But for those who want to go slow, it can be kind of a slow revolution. So I think that will be critical. Anything else on your mind this week, Joe? 
you know, on the question of when the articles will be sent over, you know, was it smart for Pelosi? Was it smart for uh, McConnell to do what he's doing? I can normally, despite being a partisan, I can sort of look at these things and say, this is what's going to happen because this is what the politics are. Whoever wins the narrative fight, the other side blinks. There's no chance here that that's going to happen because it's it's asymmetrical political warfare. What works for Democrats at this point doesn't hurt Republicans. And what works for Republicans at this point doesn't hurt Democrats. So it's hard to predict which which side will blink first. My guess is that McConnell being McConnell, and particularly with the Iran stuff going on, he's got more staying power to just wait this out. So my guess is Pelosi will go first. And she will go first in saying, I've already accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. We don't have the rules that we want right now, but we've got 75% of Americans now saying they want live witnesses at the trial. That's what I wanted. That's what I've got. So again, I can't predict what will happen based on the political zero-sum game. I can say that you cannot appeal to Mitch McConnell's soul on this because it's not clear he has one. So I think Pelosi will go first. But we'll do it in, in a way that she declares victory. Republicans will say she's caving and we'll move on to something else quickly. Well, Joe, to be continued. Always great to hear your thoughts. Should be an interesting year. Until next week. Thanks, Katie. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 